The sun was beginning to set over the alien landscape. It was calm and serene. The stranded traveler had set out early that morning to explore this exotic new world. Clutching to his arm was a small, sapien-like creature that had been his constant companion since his arrival. For most of the day, she was content to walk beside him. But as night set in, she began to panic. A massive, ornate building towered on the horizon. The building would have been a marvel in his world. Now, all that was left was ruins. It would be the perfect shelter to wait out the night. They made camp in a corner near the entrance, and as the traveler tended to their small fire, his companion nervously scanned the darkness just outside its glow. She froze. Out of the dim light, two crimson-red eyes stared back at her. The traveler scrambled back. Thinking quickly, he lit a makeshift torch, and the eyes fled. The traveler gave chase. Running through the darkness, he could hear the creature just ahead of him, just out of reach. And then, it was gone. He noticed an opening in the floor. It was a well descending into impenetrable darkness. He could hear the scraping and clawing of beasts in its depths. He dropped the torch down the shaft. It fell for an eternity before clattering to rest on the floor of an enormous chamber. In the dim light, he could see hundreds of shadows scurrying towards the well. They were coming. He ran, back to the camp, back to his companion. A few of the creatures caught up to him, clawing and gnashing their fangs at his heels. Using a metal pipe as a weapon, he lashed back. He felt warm, wet blood. Reaching the camp, he grabbed his panicked companion and another torch and ran back out into the night. The moon was bright, making the countryside glow in eerie green. The creatures were gaining on them again. This time, he frantically swung with the torch. Embers fell and ignited the small flowers that grew all over. They went up in flames, consuming more of the creatures. He kept running. He ran until exhaustion forced him to collapse. He dropped his companion and fell into a bed of white flowers. Then, darkness. He woke with a start. He looked for the creatures and his companion, but they were gone. Then he heard Miss Lewis, the landlady, arguing outside his apartment. It had only been a dream. A candle on the table beside him sputtered in the breeze coming from an open window. It was a cool London night, and he had fallen asleep at his work. He relit his pipe and carried on. The nightmare had given him the inspiration to finish his book. By dawn, a completed draft was stacked on the desk. On the cover was written, The Time Machine, by H.G. Wells. This is Luminaries. Never in the field of human conflict was so much over by so many. So I have a dream. The new world here now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. America needs a tidal wave of the old-time religion. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. Where there is error, may we bring truth. Where there is doubt, may we bring faith. And where there is despair, may we bring hope. 
the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Herbert George Wells was born on September 21st, 1866, in the Bromley suburb of London. He was born into the lower class of Victorian society, not quite the bottom, but still in service to the upper classes. Both of his parents worked at the estates of local elites. His mother, Sarah Wells, was a lady's maid, and his father, Joseph, was the head gardener at a private estate. When Joseph lost his job, the couple poured their life savings into a china shop called Atlas House. The store was not a success, and Joseph never worked hard to make it one. Instead, he brought in money playing professional cricket. H.G. was the fourth of four children born to Sarah and Joseph. He spent much of his childhood in the basement of Atlas House, where he could only see the outside world through the slats of a metal street grate. He would remember this boots-eye view as a dismal, dingy, and depressing view of the world. When he was seven, H.G. broke his leg roughhousing with some friends. He would later recall this incident as the luckiest of his life. Medical science in that day required months of downtime to heal a broken leg. During this time, H.G. developed an insatiable appetite for reading. He discovered worlds beyond his imagination in the pages of books. This love would outlive his bed rest and set him on a course of discovery that would change the rest of his life. Once healed, young Wells was enrolled in the local private school, Bromley Academy. There, his love for learning found new heights in the subjects of science and mathematics. It was at this time that young Bertie, as he was called at home, took his first steps towards his calling. During his time at Bromley, Wells authored his first novel. The Desert Daisy was a fantasy tale filled with stories of battles, distant countries, and imagined royalty. The story was not published until it was discovered 12 years after his death, but it was, for Wells, the first taste of a different kind of life. When he was 11, his father fell from a ladder and broke his leg. Joseph was unable to play cricket, and without this additional source of income, the family fell upon hard times. Sarah soon returned to her former employer, and young Bertie found himself apprenticed at the Draper's firm of Rogers and Denyer. Wells quickly learned that he hated the drapery business. From his first day, he set to searching for ways to escape. He would hide, tucked away behind stacks of cloth, devouring whatever books he could get his hands on. Rogers and Denyer soon dismissed H.G., saying that he was not refined enough for the profession of drapery. Hearing of his dismissal, Wells's cousin Alfred offered him a job as a pupil teacher at the village school in Wookie. Wells loved the position and began to consider teaching as a profession. Unfortunately, Alfred had lied about his teaching credentials. Once his deceit was discovered, Alfred was dismissed as headmaster in Wookie and H.G. lost his job. Wells now found himself with his mother at the estate of Up Park in Sussex. At Up Park, H.G. was given free access to the estate's library. Subjects never before open to Wells were at his fingertips. His intellectual horizons widened as he read Plato, Thomas Paine, and Voltaire. It would not last long, as Sarah Wells had soon found a new apprenticeship for Bertie. Sarah found him a position at the South Sea Drapery Emporium. This time, H.G. resolved himself to be a good apprentice. 
But after a year, he felt trapped again. He started looking for a way to escape his apprenticeship, and an idea soon materialized. He reached out to the headmaster at Midhurst Academy and inquired about the possibility of employment. To his delight, Headmaster Byatt offered him a position as an assistant teacher. The job would be without salary until Wells mastered more subjects. He was ready to take the offer immediately. Joseph and Sarah, however, would not be so easily persuaded. Wells ditched work one day and walked 17 miles to Up Park for a showdown with his mother. After pleading and threatening, Sarah finally agreed to think about H.G. taking the position. Joseph, however, believed that taking an unpaid position was foolish and could not be persuaded otherwise. H.G. would have been resigned to the drapery had it not been for Byatt's intervention. The headmaster ended the discussion when he offered to pay £20 for the first year and £40 for the second. With this salary, Wells could leave South Sea and would no longer need financial help from his mother. At the age of 17, Wells was the master of his own fate. Even more, he had put the first crack in his Victorian cage. H.G. set to work as soon as he arrived in Midhurst. He established a strict routine that accounted for every minute of his day. He saw education not only as a path forward in his career, but also as a way to broaden his horizons. There was only one problem. Midhurst Grammar School required all teachers to be confirmed members of the Anglican Church. His desire to stay at Midhurst overcame his opposition to established religion. He was soon confirmed and set to work in earnest. Wells taught classes during the day, and in the evening, he studied under Headmaster Byatt. In his explorations, he came across Plato's Republic. Plato's assertions about the nature of society continued to weaken the beliefs H.G. had inherited from his mother. The proper order that Sarah taught him was crumbling at the foundations. The final blow came when he read Henry George's Progress and Poverty. George was disturbed by the economic divide between landowners and tenants. He argued that all members of society should benefit from the land and that landlords unfairly exploited their tenants. His solution was to tax the landlords and redistribute the money back to the tenants. Wells was drawn to the idea of reform and soon found himself enthralled by socialism. Wells set aside these new intellectual excursions as the end of the semester approached. He studied long hours all through the winter. When exams came in May, he was prepared. He scored so well that he was offered a scholarship to the Normal School of Science in South Kensington, London. The scholarship came with a small stipend to cover living expenses, as well as the railway ticket to London. He was also accepted into the biology program under the great Thomas Huxley. It was a dream come true. After only one year in Midhurst, Wells was moving on to greater things. Wells arrived in London in September of 1884. The Industrial Revolution was at its height and science was king. It produced the steam engine, electricity, and the modern factory. The pace of change was mystifying. It seemed as if everything was possible. Even the stifling boundaries of Victorian society were beginning to crack. However, 
the Industrial Revolution also had consequences. The divide between the elite and the working class had never been greater. London was at the heart of the revolution. Smog choked the city skyline, and the Thames was thick with industrial runoff. The British Empire's appetite for progress was insatiable, and the need for science teachers was increasing. The normal school was chartered to fulfill that need. However, the social conditions created by this progress could not be ignored. H.G.'s burgeoning socialism would continue to grow in his new surroundings. Under the tutelage of his icon, Sir Thomas Huxley, Wells would come to see science as the great savior of mankind. He threw himself into his studies just as rigorously as he had at Midhurst. By the end of the semester, Wells was one of only three students to pass Huxley's biology course with first-class honors. With such high marks, he was guaranteed the continuation of his scholarship. His second year at the normal school was much more difficult. The subject was physics, and the professor wasn't half the teacher that Huxley had been. The course required an understanding of math that H.G. just didn't have. In the end, he failed multiple courses and was sure that he would lose his scholarship. The third year wasn't any better than the second. This time, the subject was geology. Instead of having difficulty understanding, Wells was just bored. Memorizing the names of rocks was not the groundbreaking science he was interested in. There were no fundamental philosophical questions to ask as there had been in the study of biology with Huxley. Wells soon lost interest in his studies and sought other avenues to pursue his curiosity. He joined the Normal School Debate Society, which met in the basement of the school. The format was simple. A member would present a paper which the other members would then discuss. Only religion and politics were off-limits. Wells, always happy at the center of controversy, never failed to bring up one or both of the forbidden topics in his discussions. He returned to writing in earnest. Wells and several of his classmates launched a small opinion paper called the Science School Journal, where they would discuss science, religion, politics, and contemplate the future of technology. As the editor of the journal, H.G. was constantly busy with its production. When finals came around, he was wholly unprepared and failed his geology exam. Because of his poor grades, he did not receive a degree. In his heart, Wells had already decided that he wanted to be a writer. But now, with school over, no degree and no money, he had to find a job. There would be no work for a failed teacher in congested London. Eventually, he found a position at Holt Academy in Wales. It was far, and it did not pay well, but H.G. was out of options. Holt Academy was run by a headmaster with little interest in the education of his pupils. It was old and not well kept. Wells resolved himself to ignore the problems at Holt and focus as much energy on writing as possible. He planned to spend one year in Wales, saving his money and working on his skill as a writer. His plan was cut short when he contracted tuberculosis. He was soon at Up Park once again under the care of his mother Sarah. There, he used his downtime to continue developing as a writer. He knew that his writing suffered because of his lack of discipline and resolved himself to correct this. He worked diligently to hone his craft, writing many pieces on various subjects. During this time, he began writing a scientific romance for the science school's journal. It was his most ambitious writing yet. In it, 
he recalled the exploits of a time traveler. He called it Chronic Argonauts. The piece had promise, but H.G. knew he did not yet possess the skill needed to do it justice. He decided to set the novel aside and return to London. There, he scrounged work preparing short academic pieces, writing a few minor newspaper articles, and tutoring. By Christmas of 1888, H.G. found a position teaching at Henley House in Kilburn. At the same time, he decided to finish his degree, this time determined to score well in the hated geology course. He graduated in the summer of 1890 with honors in zoology and a position at the University Correspondence College in London. In 1899, he married his first cousin, Isabel Wells, a not uncommon practice at the time. They had been together since his first year at the London School. At the beginning of their relationship, they found in each other a shared spirit and similar interests. By the time Wells returned from Holt, they had already begun to grow apart. Wells knew that he would never be content with the traditional domesticity expected in a Victorian-era marriage. Despite his reservations, the marriage was finalized on October 31, 1891. The marriage was unhappy from the start. Wells's ambition and speculations were too fanciful for Isabel, and her contentment with the details of domesticity was unbearable to him. Tension in the young couple's intimate life was the straw that broke the camel's back. Wells wanted a woman of passion in all areas, intellectually and sexually. Isabel's feelings towards sex were trapped in the Victorian era. It was an impropriety forced on womankind. This division between them put a wedge in their relationship. A few months into their marriage, Wells met a woman who matched his temperament. Her name was Amy Catherine Robbins. He called her Jane. She was one of his students at the university where he was teaching. They were kindred spirits from the start. Wells, however, still hoped that he and Isabel could reconcile their differences. He could not imagine leaving her, but he could not imagine staying with her for the rest of his life either. While he was trying to figure out what to do, Wells suffered another lung failure. While confined to bed, H.G. contemplated his future. He knew that a career in teaching would push his health to the limit, so he decided to pursue writing full-time. The only question was how to make it pay. He soon came upon a revelation while vacationing at the sea. It took the form of a popular novel by J.M. Barrie, the author of Peter Pan. Barrie had written a book called When a Man's Single, in which one of his characters lectures on being a successful freelance writer. He advises focusing on short, simple pieces about everyday topics. This hit Wells like a lightning bolt. He saw potential articles all around him. His first would be about his stay at the sea. It was purchased the day he sent it to the publisher. Within three months, Wells was making more from writing than he ever had from teaching. However, his marital troubles resurfaced when he and Isabel visited the Robbins for Christmas. Whatever the relationship between Wells and Jane Robbins, Isabel was furious after their stay. She gave him an ultimatum. She would not tolerate the situation continuing. H.G. would have to choose her or Jane. He struggled over the decision. Divorce was taboo enough in Victorian England to make one a social pariah. More importantly, he still loved Isabel. In the end, he just could not see a happy path forward with Isabel. 
He moved out of their London house, and by January, he and Jane moved in together. Their living arrangement was scandalous for their time. When their landlady discovered that two unmarried people were living together under her roof, she nearly threw them out into the street. Jane's brothers appeared at the door one day, threatening to beat up Wells if he did not break off the affair. Despite these pressures, H.G. and Jane were happy together. He wrote, she edited. The division of labor worked well, and they were soon producing enough articles to live comfortably. For a time, everything was on the up for the young rebels, but trouble was on the horizon. The periodical market was tanking, and the smaller publishers were starting to go under. As the market for his articles dried up, Wells's future as a writer was becoming uncertain. The situation was darkened by Jane's fall into depression. The combination of the social pressure imposed by their illicit relationship and the impending economic disaster had become too much for her to bear. Wells needed a solution to their problems, and fast. As his last pieces were being purchased, one of the publishing houses inquired if he would be interested in writing a short novel for distribution through the periodicals and eventual publication. It was just the break he had been looking for. He even had a story in mind. Wells decided it was time to revise their chronic Argonauts. He believed he finally had the skill to do the piece justice. It's my trump card, he said, and if it does not come off very much, I shall know my place for the rest of my career. Wells' epic tale recounts the experiences of the unnamed time traveler in the year 802,701 and his encounter with the descendants of humanity. Set in the long-decayed ruins of the English Empire, the time traveler mocks faith in progress and draws out the class divisions of his time to a ghastly end. He critiques the excess of both the social elites and the communists in his description of mankind's descendants and division into the frail, unproductive surface-dwelling Eloy and the vicious and industrious subterranean Morlocks. The time traveler discovers that the Morlocks are the descendants of the working class who continue to operate the machinery that provide for the Eloy, the final evolution of the upper class. In a wicked twist of fate, the Morlocks have become the dominant species providing for the Eloy only to hunt them for meat. The time traveler escapes this world of the damned only to witness the end of the world 30 million years later. Humanity has gone extinct and only a few monstrous life forms remain slowly devolving into the oceans. The sun has nearly burned out and casts a ghostly red pale over the now silent, dead planet. With this depiction of the end of the earth, Wells casts his final stone at Victorian society and its belief in divine purpose. The Time Machine was a massive success and was soon being published all over the world. Wells lost no time and capitalized on his momentum by following up with another book only a year later. The result would be his darkest novel ever published, The Island of Dr. Moreau. The book was considered too gruesome and controversial for serial publication. The main character in the novel, Mr. Prendick, is marooned on an island somewhere in the South Pacific. His rescuer, Montgomery, is the assistant to the island's owner, Dr. Moreau. Moreau is a physiologist who is expelled from the English Medical Society for his illegal experimentation in vivisection. He escaped to the South Pacific to continue his animal-human hybridization experiments in solitude. 
Prendick soon discovers that the island is filled with Dr. Moreau's Frankenstein-esque monstrosities. He encounters apes, leopards, bears, swine, wolves, and even sloths that have been twisted and mutilated into horrifying mimicries of humanity. These creatures, called the Beast Folk in the book, are set loose on the island. The Beast Folk worship their torturer, Dr. Moreau, constructing a religion around him in a vain attempt to overcome their animal instincts and explain their nature. Despite Moreau's efforts, the Beast Folk eventually regress into their original nature. The failure of the Beast to control their animal impulses eventually leads to the death of the Doctor and the breakdown of their tenuous society. With the island of Dr. Moreau, Wells offers readers a blasphemous vision of human nature. Prendick sees the Beast's plight as a parallel of humanities, one not as heavenly spirits in material bodies as argued by Christianity, but rather as animals whose evolution has left us tormented between regressive desires and impossible ideals. Despite Wells's condemnation of Christian belief, atheism and democracy offered no succor to the beast folk either, as chaos consumed their fragile world after the death of their god. Wells accomplished his goal to shock and offend his Victorian audience. The island of Dr. Moreau received scathing reviews among critics. Some even called for its removal from circulation, saying that young people and those with feeble nerves ought not to read it. Wells had made a name for himself with his scientific romances, as his unique genre of writing was being called. However, he also hoped to be taken seriously as a more traditional novelist. He made the first efforts in this direction with The Wheels of Chance, published merely six months after The Island of Dr. Moreau. Over the next five years, Wells' reputation would grow enormously with a nonstop string of successes, including The Invisible Man, The War of the Worlds, and Kipps. While Kipps is considered to be his most masterful novel, earning him recognition as a writer on par with Charles Dickens, it was a science fiction epic, The War of the Worlds, that would earn him near immortality. The War of the Worlds created the genre of alien invasion stories and has been made into seven movies. Orson Welles famously caused panic throughout the U.S. with his realistic radio adaptation of the novel on the eve of Halloween 1938. Cloaked in the fanciful and frightening guise of an alien invasion, Welles indicts England for its merciless colonial endeavors. The Martian invaders show as much respect for the lives of the English as the English did for their colonial subjects. In the opening chapter, the main character parrots Wells' thesis. Before we judge them too harshly, he says, we must remember what ruthless and utter destruction our own species has wrought, not only upon animals such as the vanished bison and the dodo, but upon its inferior races. The Tasmanians, in spite of their human likeness, were swept out of existence in a war of extermination waged by European immigrants in the space of 50 years. Are we such apostles of mercy as to complain if the Martians warred in the same spirit? Two years after War of the Worlds, Wells again changed directions. In 1901, he published Anticipations of the Reaction of Mechanical and Scientific Progress Upon Human Life and Thought. In January, Queen Victoria passed away. Many felt that her passing represented the end of an era of decency and feared the future. Wells was of an opposite mind. He compared the late queen to a compact and dignified paperweight 
whose removal symbolized the blowing away of old ideas and the end of an epoch of tremendous stability. With anticipations, Wells addressed the technologies that were beginning to undermine the old world. In a private letter, he explained that the book was designed to undermine and destroy the monarch, monogamy, faith in God, and respectability, and the British Empire, all under the guise of a speculation about motor cars and electrical heating. It turned out to be his first nonfiction bestseller. Many of his predictions hinged on the changes that would be brought by the motor vehicle. With over 100 years since the advent of cars, it's hard to imagine what the world was like before them. The people of the 19th century had no idea what those changes would look like. Wells thought he had a good idea. At least he knew how he hoped it would work out, and a century later, many of his predictions still hold water. He predicted that personal vehicles would move people out of cities into suburbs and undermine the Victorian class system. The neatly ordered two classes of landowners and lower class created by the European agrarian world would be replaced by a chaotic system of four classes. The landowning class would remain at the top as shareholders who own the means of production. The lower class would descend even further and become what Wells referred to as the abyss, a class with no purpose or meaning in the new world. A new restructured middle class would also emerge. This would be the educated class that would be responsible for almost all production and economic growth. The final class would consist of non-productive managers, political organizers, banks, and others filling similar roles. Wells did not believe that democracy would be adequate to the task of maintaining order in this new, chaotic system. He argued that the liberal democracies that emerged during the Enlightenment would eventually be replaced by a new international republic founded on science and the rejection of religion. But, before this could be achieved, Wells saw the world descending into an unimaginable conflict. This would not have the idyllic romance war had maintained in the old world, and instead would be mechanized and monstrous. He even saw the rise of German imperialism centered along the Rhine as eventually leading to conflict. Thirteen years after the publication of Anticipations, Germany invaded Belgium in a move that would mark the beginning of World War I. Anticipations put Wells on the map as an intellectual tour de force. He was invited to lecture all across England. He even received an invitation to speak at the prestigious Royal Society in London. In 1903, he followed up Anticipations with Mankind in the Making. It was not as visionary as his previous volume. Mankind in the Making focused on Wells' socialist political views. From the start, he warns that the views expressed in this book are designed for those predisposed for their reception. He argued that any institution that does not mold men into fine and vigorous forms must be destroyed. In his view, both monarchy and the American democracy are proper targets for destruction. In their place, he called for the creation of a global liberal government which he called the New Republic. This new government would be created and administered by an intellectual aristocracy with a shared language, values, literature, and scientific understanding. We are all socialists now, he claimed. He also discussed his view of the optimal environment for children to grow into good citizens of the New Republic. Mankind in the making was not well received. 
Wells decided to change his tactic. If audiences were not yet ready to accept his brand of socialism, he thought maybe he could spread his ideas through his novels. He wrote the second and third of his utopian novels with this in mind. The first was The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth. The book was a thinly veiled allegory for how society tries to hold back social change. It was a backlash against the rejection of mankind in the making. The second novel was a modern utopia. In modern utopia, Wells creates a model of his new republic. Neither of these social novels were a major success. Just as it appeared that Wells' influence was receding, he was approached with an offer that opened new opportunities for political activism. The Fabian Society was founded in 1884. Its stated purpose was to promote the principles of democratic socialism through gradual reform of existing systems. They were opposed to the Marxist desire to overthrow traditional regimes through violent revolution. The Fabians were the first group in England to advocate for a universal healthcare system, a uniform minimum wage, and the creation of a national education system. British elites of all backgrounds were drawn to the cause, and the ranks of the Fabians soon included prominent figures from throughout the empire. One of the society's most important spokesmen was the playwright George Bernard Shaw. He joined the Fabians in September of 1884. Immediately, he set to work drafting the Fabians' first manifesto. When Shaw read Wells' anticipations, he knew he had found a kindred spirit. Shaw reached out to Wells and invited him to a dinner party at the home of Sidney and Beatrice Webb. The Webbs were at the core of the Fabian leadership. Shaw, unbeknownst to Wells, was quietly interviewing him for a leading role in the Fabian society. Wells was invited to attend a meeting of the society and joined soon after. Wells saw the Fabians as a conduit for promoting his own social and political ideas. Seeing his ambition, Shaw invited Wells to contribute to the growing body of Fabian literature, a task that Wells gladly accepted. In addition to publishing for the society, Wells used his influence as a popular novelist to bring in members to the Fabians, many of whom were youth. The influx of young members began to create a division within the society. Wells and his Fabian youth were growing impatient with what he called the old gang and their insistence on slow reform. Instead, they wanted to quicken the pace and pressure Parliament into making immediate changes. The old gang was infuriated by Wells' attempt to usurp their power, and the Fabians descended into a quasi-civil war. By 1905, it was clear that Wells was attempting to seize control of the society for himself. The old gang fought to counter him at every turn, but even during his absence on a trip to America, they could not overcome his influence. The final showdown between Wells and the old gang occurred in Essex in December of 1906. A society debate was called to determine the direction of the Fabians once and for all. Wells spoke for more than an hour. It was a mistake given his poor oratory skills and worse because he often strayed from issues to personal attacks. His speech culminated in a demand for a vote of no confidence in the current Fabian leadership. He spoke so long that the remainder of the meeting was postponed. A week later, it was Shaw's turn. Unlike Wells, Shaw was a gifted orator and held his audience entranced. He picked apart all of Wells' proposals, and within minutes, 
the direction of the Fabians was clear. If that was not enough, Shaw had two final tricks up his sleeve. First was to call out Wells for his newest book, In the Days of the Comet. In it, the world is transformed into a socialist utopia when a comet spreads an unknown gas across the Earth. After this global transformation, the female character, Nettie, proposes an open relationship between herself, the story's protagonist Ledford, and his rival, Viral. From the moment of its release, In the Days of the Comet was controversial. Many saw it as linking the two morally corrupt ideas of socialism and free love. One conservative candidate cited the book as proof that socialists wanted wives to be held in common. Democratic socialists and progressives fought to distance themselves from this disastrous controversy. The idea of free love was offensive to many, even in the Fabians, and especially those in the upper classes. This provided Shaw's with a useful weapon, one which he exploited to great effect. Secondly, Shaw closed his speech by issuing an ultimatum. If Wells was to win the election to lead the Fabians, the current leadership would all step down, leaving the society to fend for itself. This carrot-and-stick approach worked and Wells' political aspirations were foreclosed for good. Despite his crushing defeat at the hands of Shaw, Wells remained active in the Fabians for some time. He wrote a series of articles on socialism in 1908, hoping to continue influencing the national debate. In these articles, he examined the development of socialist thought and laid out the motivations and goals of the socialist agenda. These were collected, edited, and published under the title New Worlds for Old, a plain account of modern socialism. Wells identifies what he calls the two main generalizations of socialism. First is that the claim by parents to have a private, individual right and isolated responsibility for their children was harmfully exaggerated. He cites several disturbing cases of malnutrition, abuse, and neglect of children from various locales around England. All the cases are documented by local police, church officials, doctors, school teachers, and other upstanding citizens that have first-hand knowledge of the situations. One of these reads, A family where parents are much too given to drink, father invalid and being helped by sick society and parish, housing, five in two rooms, children flea-bitten, two have died, food is rather scanty, wife very quarrelsome and drunken, boys play truant, often. Another reads, Father an old soldier without a pension who reads novels. All the small children were found eating a large meal of ham and eggs and strong tea after 8 p.m. He in bed at the time. They have lapsed from thrift society membership. They are extremely filthy and the man drinks. A mission sells them meals cheap. Wife 18 at marriage and one child died. They feed pretty largely but unhealthily and eat pieces at lunchtime. At time of visit, though very dirty, they were tidier than ever found before. The eldest child has chronic separation and large perforation of ear. Housing, five in two rooms. Wells sees only two ways out of these atrocious circumstances. The first is to relieve the parents by lowering the standards of raising children. This is swiftly dismissed as intolerable and equally harmful to children and society. The only remaining alternative, he claims, is to relieve the burden of parenting by supplementing their efforts. 
Wells now comes to the first of his two generalizations. He writes, Essentially, the socialist attitude is this, an insistence that parentage can no longer be regarded as an isolated private matter, that the welfare of the children is of universal importance and must, therefore, be finally a matter of collective concern. He does not elaborate on what the state's role should be in the maintenance of its citizenry. Instead, realizing that his solution necessitates an economic question, Wells moves to examine the ways and means of accomplishing state distribution of welfare. This brings him to his second generalization of socialism, which is the necessity of private property rights has been greatly exaggerated by those who benefit the most from their enforcement. These are the owners. He argues that the demand for profit at every level of ownership, whether it be land, housing, or natural materials, is, he says, an enormous obstruction and waste of human energy and an entire loss of opportunity and freedom for the mass of mankind. Progress is retarded. There is a vast amount of avoidable wretchedness, cruelty, and injustice. The socialist holds that the community as a whole should be inalienably the owner and administrator of the land, of all raw materials, of all values and resources accumulated from the past, and that all private property must be of a terminable nature, reverting back to the community and subject to the general welfare. It is the spirit of gain, as Wells calls the owner's demand for profit, that is the chief problem of the capitalist system. Socialism embodies the opposite spirit, he says, the spirit of service, which promotes pride in work and the desire to raise the standards for all. In the last chapters, Wells addresses some objections raised against socialism. He proposes the creation of a national healthcare system in the UK and explains his objections to the Marxist call for revolution through violence. New Worlds for Old was well-received and remains relevant today. The book continued to raise Wells' status as a politically active academic and social critic. If New Worlds for Old elevated him as the spokesperson for socialism, his next book established him as a prophet of the new century. Wells wrote his next scientific romance in only four months. Written less than five years after Wilbur and Orville Wright's legendary test flight in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, The War in the Air follows the adventures of Bert Smallways as he is witness to a devastating new kind of war. Bert is caught up in global events when he stumbles upon the newly created German Air Force preparing for an invasion of the United States. When the Germans launch their surprise attack on New York City, the U.S. is caught completely off guard. The U.S. is forced to fight on two fronts when a combined Asiatic force of Chinese and Japanese aircraft invade California from the west. Hoping to evict their rivals before it was too late, the Asiatic Air Force leapfrogs the American resistance in the west and concentrates on the German threat in New York. The situation becomes dire for the U.S., and Smallways kills the German prince in a duel and delivers the plans for a new, more powerful aircraft to the President of the United States. The superior planes are put into production and swiftly begin to turn the tide of battle. Unbeknownst to Smallways, the rest of the world has descended into chaos. When the Germans launched their surprise attack on the U.S., 
they ignored their European rivals who quickly scrambled their own air forces and retaliated against the German cities. An allied force of English, French, Spanish, and Italian planes bombed Hamburg and Berlin into dust, while the remaining German fleets targeted Paris and London. Concurrently, the Asiatic Alliance marched westward and eventually takes on the Germans on their home turf. The destruction is only stopped when credit runs dry and the global financial system finally collapses. War and financial panic are followed by an epidemic Wells calls the Purple Death. The trifecta of war, ruin, and pestilence causes the collapse of all human civilization. The omniscient narrator assures the audience that it is out of these ashes that a new, orderly, scientific, and secure world state emerged. Aside from being one of his better science fiction novels, The War in the Air was an important work for Wells because of its vision. There are many observations he makes about how aircraft will change the nature of the battlefield. First, he anticipates the obsolescence of dreadnoughts and other large battleships due to the superiority of aircraft. He accurately predicts that powerful, technologically advanced nation-states will abandon the idea of limiting war to isolated battlefronts and embrace a policy of total war, including civilian targets. He also sees how aircraft will make this possible by opening new ways for militaries to reach targets behind enemy lines. Civilians will no longer be able to watch war take place like a spectator sport. Instead, the front lines will be fluid, and the home front can become the battlefront at any moment. Wells correctly read the signs that were already beginning to show in 1908, and very nearly predicted the battle lines and alliances that were eventually to form in the First World War. Wells' tenure within the Fabians came to an end in late 1908, after several new clashes with party leadership. First, Wells was seen as disloyal to the socialist cause when he endorsed the re-election of Winston Churchill to the parliament seat for Northwest Manchester over the socialist candidate who he saw as too extreme. After the election, Wells again crossed swords with fellow socialists when he endorsed the Proportional Representative Society's campaign for a new electoral system that would diminish the influence of parties. It was soon clear that Wells had burned too many bridges and resigned in September of 1908. Meritorious or not, Wells' attempt to reform the Fabian society had been preposterously confrontational from the start, and his own delusions of grandeur were subversive of any attempts at compromise. Despite their clash, Wells, Shaw, and the Webbs maintained their friendship long after the Fabian affair. There were three lasting benefits that Wells took from his time with the Fabian Society. First, his spotlight as a party leader had enlarged his public platform. He was now not only a famous author and academic, but a political influencer as well. Second, by spending the better part of 11 years writing and debating in the society, Wells had more thoroughly formulated his social and political ideas as evidenced by the publication of New Worlds for Old. Finally, through his involvement in the Fabians, Wells met Amber Reeves, with whom he would have a long and tumultuous affair. Amber Reeves was the daughter of leading Fabian, William Pember Reeves, the High Commissioner of New Zealand. She met Wells while in college through her involvement in the Cambridge Fabian Society. 
Wells immediately took a liking to her, owing as much to her feminine qualities as well as her keen academic mind. Soon, Amber was a regular guest at Spade House, Wells's mansion in South Kent. At first, their relationship remained above board, quote-unquote, as he called it, but it did not remain this way for long. Wells was continually maintaining a relationship with one mistress or another. Jane was aware of her husband's wanderings and tolerated them under one condition. She was to remain his wife, partner, and colleague. This implied that Wells maintained a certain level of discretion in his outside relationships. So when his affair with Amber became public, Jane's patience began to thin. In the spring of 1909, the situation became explosive when Amber discovered that she was pregnant. Adding to the mess was the publication of Wells's new book, Anne Veronica. The novel follows the life of Anne Veronica as she rebels against Victorian preconceptions of womanhood. After leaving the restrictive home of her father, she moves to London to study biology, where she falls in love with a professor named Capes. She eventually joins the women's suffrage movement and is arrested storming Parliament during a protest march. After her release, Anne decides to conform to her parents' idea of womanhood by returning home to marry a suitor picked by her family. Miserable in this role, she reneges on the wedding and returns to London to be with Capes. By this time, Capes is married, but separated. Ignoring Victorian values, Anne initiates a relationship with the professor, and the two live happily together. Wells had trouble getting a publisher to print the book. Anne Veronica was scandalous the day it was released and was soon banned in many shops. Despite this, the novel had a cult following and helped inspire the burgeoning feminist movement in England. With the popular outcry against Anne Veronica and the mounting pressure of Amber's pregnancy, Wells decided it was time to abandon England. Amber and Wells met at Victoria Station in London and stole away to a chateau in the French countryside. However, outside of their physical relationship, Wells and Amber were in very different places in their life and had a particularly difficult time being together. Neither was satisfied with their quiet life in France. After three months, they realized their mistake and returned to England. Astonishingly, Jane accepted H.G.'s apology and life returned to normal. He continued to see Amber until she eventually found a suitor in Blanco White. Even after their marriage, Wells supported Amber and their daughter, Anna Jane. He visited Anna Jane frequently, but she would not find out that Wells was her father until she was 18 years old. After the Anne Veronica controversy, publishers were wary of what Wells might put out next. When he sent the new Machiavelli to Macmillan for review, the publisher sent it back, saying that there was twice as much reason to reject it as there was Anne Veronica. After many edits, Macmillan finally agreed to the new Machiavelli, only to immediately shop the novel to other printing houses. Eventually, Wells' first publisher, John Lane, picked it up, but included a note from the author stating that the character Remington was not a likeness of Wells and denied that the book was intended to titillate. The book follows the political career of Richard Remington, an esteemed Cambridge graduate and husband of a wealthy heiress, Remington began his political career as a PM, first as a liberal, then as a conservative. His career is wrecked in its prime, 
by an affair with a brilliant young Oxford graduate named Isabel Rivers. Unable to stop the scandal from becoming public, Remington throws away his career, abandons his wife, and leaves England. The book ends with he and Isabel in Italy, where Remington writes the account of his political career, the new Machiavelli. The fact is, Remington was similar to Wells, and many of the main characters were modeled after public figures. Wells's old Fabian rivals, the Webbs, were included in a scathing portrayal through the characters of Oscar and Alatoria Baileys. The new Machiavelli was Wells' tirade against the artificiality of Edwardian morality and the hypocrisy of the upper classes who enforced it on the country while simultaneously bribing newspapers not to print their scandalous lifestyles. Even the British Prime Minister Arthur Balfour did not escape Wells's critique and was included as the character Evansham. Somehow, Wells managed to avoid a libel suit, but like Anne Veronica, the new Machiavelli was banned in many places and was not available at public libraries. However, the only thing the controversy did was double sales of the book. Wells told a friend, My personal unpopularity is immense but amusing, and people listen with blanched faces to the tale of my vices and go and buy my books. Many reviewers believe this new social critique to be Wells' best work. Upton Sinclair claimed it was Wells' masterpiece and one of the most powerful of English novels. In 1909, a British chemist by the name of Frederick Soddy published a book called An Interpretation of Radium. Among other things, Soddy claimed that if by some means an atom could be split, it would release an unprecedented amount of energy. This discovery became the linchpin for one of Wells' most astonishing predictions and the basis for his next book. In The World Set Free, Wells explores the terrifying realm of the apocalyptic when a global war unleashes the destructive force of the atom across the globe. Prophetically, Wells's war is initiated when Germany invades France through Belgium. Wells imagines the creation of small atomic hand grenades dropped over cities from airplanes. His atomic grenades release a chain reaction that explode for months on end and wipe out everything in their path. After the war, a world state is set up to prevent another destructive conflict from ever occurring. The King of the Balkans resists the new state and launches a counterstrike to take it over. The Balkan Empire is inevitably stopped and its king killed in the process. After his defeat, nationalism declines and the world enters a utopian era. The world set free is significant in that Wells predicted the militarization of atomic research and the coming of not one, but two world wars. Wells's novel inspired the work of physicist Leo Silzard, who read it in 1932. The very next year, Silzard pioneered the concept of a nuclear chain reaction. Based on this hypothesis, Silzard and his colleague Enrico Fermi patented the nuclear reactor in 1934. Then, in 1939, Silzard wrote the letter that Albert Einstein signed, encouraging the U.S. government to initiate the Manhattan Project. One American reviewer of The World Set Free commented, Heaven defend us from his utopias, but we like his explosions.
When the novel was released early in 1914, there were already rumblings of war in Europe. Little did Wells know the destruction that July would bring. When Germany invaded Belgium in 1914, Wells was as shocked as anyone. The destructive capacity of war between modern states was unthinkable, and Wells knew it would bring ruin to the already faltering social and economic order of Europe. Public support for the war was nearly universal, and Britain's involvement was an inevitability. Most concerning for Wells was the attitude of the British towards their German adversaries. The key division was between those who espoused total hatred for all Germans and those who distinguished between the German people and their leaders. Wells was a proponent of regime change in Germany and hoped to see freedom for both countries. He expressed this view in an article ironically titled The War That Will End War. Early on, he pushed for U.S. intervention and the creation of a world-governing body to be one of the terms of settlement after the war. Throughout, he consistently fought xenophobia, propounding the view that the war was not caused by the German character, but by things outside the control of the general populace. The influence of the armaments industry, secret treaties, unaccountable monarchs, and the nationalist teaching of history, he claimed, were all factors that led to the outbreak of World War I. In 1916, Wells went on an official tour of the Western Front. In France, he met Marshal Joseph Joffrey, commander of the French army and the de facto leader of all Allied forces on the Western Front. While the Battle of Verdun raged in its fifth month and the Somme offensive had just opened, Wells, as he says in his autobiography, had a talk with Papa Joffrey and was presented solemnly with a set of colored postcards of all the chief French generals. He wrote to Jane that the trip was filled with silly, shiftless mucking about. An imbecile expedition, he characterized it. Wells then visited the Isonzo, where the Italians were fighting their sixth offensive on that river. For two and a half years, the Italians and the Austria-Hungarians would fight over the same few square miles along the river, with casualties climbing upwards of 1.2 million. On his way back through France, Wells visited the French and British in the trenches at Arras, Dompierre, Fricourt, and Albert. Seeing the war up close and personal gave Wells a taste of the conditions endured by the common soldier. He was horrified. Soldiers attempting to bring food, munitions, or other supplies to the front had to carefully traverse a deadly maze of toxic mud-filled craters. One misplaced footing would result in being dragged under and drowned. Considering this problem, Wells envisioned the creation of a system of T-shaped poles supporting transport wires that could be powered by a motor. The mobile telephage system, as he called it, would be designed to be collapsible, making it easy to set up and reposition. He believed that his transport system could alleviate the difficulties of provisioning the front. Wells brought his plans to his friend Winston Churchill, who was at the time Minister of Munitions for England. Wells believed that his plans were tucked away in a bureaucrat's filing cabinet, never to see the light of day. He never found out what became of his design. In 1986, Rose Tilly, a member of the H.G. Wells Society, found a copy of a 1917 report on the Wellesian ropeway. The report ends with the following passage. 
it is possible to supply as much ammunition to the forward trenches during the hours of darkness with 15 men as it is with 1,500 to 2,000 men carrying the same, to say nothing of the saving of life. The use of the ropeways is also documented in 16 monochrome prints from November of 1917, titled Leaming Portable and Collapsible Aerial Ropeway. Back in England, Wells collected his experiences at the front in War and the Future. He praised the common soldier as the greatest man of the war, but was also impressed with Marshal Joffrey's common-sense leadership, saying that it lacked the vulgarities of ambition. In true Wellesian fashion, H.G. devoted an entire section of the book to an examination of the new technologies employed in the Great War. While he praised the Allied strategy at the Somme, he critiqued the officer corps for its rigid devotion to outdated strategies. Troop formation and cavalry charges were tactics callously wasteful of soldiers' lives in an era of modern utility, aerial reconnaissance, and tank warfare. When the British censors reviewed his book before publication, Wells received a letter demanding that he remove his critiques of the Allied commanders. Determined that he would not be a mouthpiece for propaganda, Wells burned the letter and sent the book to his publisher with the assurance that the changes had been made. When the book was finally published, the censor requested to see Wells' proofs showing the changes. Wells replied, The proofs had been lost. By 1918, the social and moral landscape of the Victorian era crumbled. The old world burned away in the cruel mechanization of modern warfare. The future that Wells had long predicted and hoped to avert had come to pass. Many had seen modern technology as the pathway to a peaceful and scientific new world. The violence of the Great War had dashed these hopes and left them adrift in a sea of nihilism. Many former skeptics and atheists turned to religion or spirituality for answers in those uncertain times. Wells found himself grappling with these same issues and sought clarity by dissecting the dark parts of the human soul in the novel Mr. Britling Sees It Through. In the novel, Wells struggles with the horrors of war, the sting of loss, and the hopelessness that the First World War had caused. Like himself, the lead character, Mr. Britling, is an author. And like Wells, Britling responds to the coming of war with the naivety of an idealist, believing that German imperialism would quickly burn out and out of its ashes a new, just world order would emerge. As the war drags on, Britling becomes increasingly disillusioned about the future of humanity. This is exacerbated by the horrifying reports from the front sent by his son. Britling's ultimate struggle comes when he learns of his son's death. His idealism comes in contact with the terrible reality of war. As others around him fantasize about the assassination of those responsible for the death of their loved ones, Britling struggles with his growing hatred of the Germans. To avoid his looming descent into nihilism, Britling looks to discover the origins of cruelty. He concludes that human cruelty is birthed from a perverted sense of righteousness, and having its origins in the good must be capable of redemption. Here, Britling encounters the transcendent when his exploration into the human soul 
brings him to conclude that humanity is guided by a finite God, which Wells calls the captain of the world republic. This God is the personification of the collective and evolving mind of the human race. Wells's captain was not the Christian God, but the glimmer of hope he found in the supernatural resonated with many readers. For Wells, the only true hope for the future of humanity was through the creation of a new world order. He and others began campaigning for the establishment of a League of Nations. Wells wrote many articles advocating for the League, which were eventually collected and published by the League of Free Nations Association under the title Anticipations of a World Peace. One major point Wells tried to make was the need for a fair and democratic peace settlement between the nations following the Great War. He feared that if the Allied powers imposed punitive terms on the Germans, it would torpedo a cooperative peace and eventually lead to another war. When the armistice was signed in 1918, his worst fears were realized. The Allies, led by the uncompromising anger of the French, stripped Germany of its territories and demanded unrealistically large war payments. This, and the refusal of the United States to enter the League of Nations, dashed any hope of establishing lasting peace. In the wake of the war, Western society came unhinged from its traditional trajectory. The progress of mankind as a moral collective seemed to become detached from technological progress, and, despite the inevitability of globalization, provincialism seemed on the rise. Lost in a sea of nihilism, the individual was king, and his neighbors be damned. This convergence was bound to lead to more conflict. Wells was determined to do all he could to avoid this outcome. He decided it was time to tell a new history of the world one which emphasized the unity of mankind. After the war, Wells and Jane took an accounting of their monetary situation. Sales of his wartime books had been better than expected. Wells was now considering devoting an entire year to the creation of a work he thought necessary, but doubted would be a financial success. He believed that history was becoming a race between education and catastrophe. The First World War was fueled by the teaching of nationalistic histories. If an alternative account emphasizing human unity could be told, it might have the reverse effect and help create a more stable culture in the future. Though they feared the book would garner low sales, he and Jane agreed that the project was worth the cost. They set to work on researching and writing the first draft in October of 1918. They soon had a team of advisors and consultants helping them to review and edit this massive project. The historical development of globalization was the book's main theme and argued that it was a central and integral part of humanity's development. The final product consisted of two volumes containing 47 color pictures, hundreds of photographs, and countless maps, timelines, and other visual aids. Within four years of publication, the outline of history had sold over one million copies worldwide. After his smashing debut as a world historian, Wells took time to travel. One of his stops on his European tour was to Petrograd, 
formerly St. Petersburg, in the newly formed Soviet Union. Wells had been invited by a member of the Russian trade delegation in Britain. After World War I, English-Russian relations had become strained as Britain supported the anti-communists during the Red Revolution. The new prime minister, Lloyd George, was as keen to mend fences as was the Kremlin. Wells's socialist leanings, his correspondence with Russian intellectuals, and his efforts to build a community of nations suggested him as a candidate sympathetic to the Soviet regime. As was his penchant, Wells secured a book deal to publish his experiences in Russia. He spent much of his two weeks in Petrograd visiting with members of the intelligentsia. He was treated to the full course of Russian theater and arts throughout the city. He was also introduced to Moira Benkendorf, a widowed countess and a suspected Soviet spy. Their meeting marked the start of a long, on-again-off-again love affair. Near the end of the trip, Wells had the opportunity to sit for 90 minutes with Lenin in Moscow. Wells was impressed by the Soviet leader's willingness to think outside of his communist ideology. Lenin, on the other hand, was not impressed with Wells. According to Trotsky, Lenin, after his interview with Wells, commented, What a narrow, petty bourgeois. Ugh, what a Philistine. His trip concluded with an invitation to speak to the Petrograd Soviet. Knowing that anything he said would be translated into propaganda, Wells drafted a measured speech and checked all the translations beforehand. He told the astonished Bolsheviks that he was a collectivist, but not a Marxist nor a communist, and that while he believed that they should be free to experiment with any political system they wanted in their country, he strongly doubted the West would ever emulate their political program. Back in England, Wells suggested that the Soviet regime should be recognized as the de facto government and that trade would allow both sides to learn from each other. Despite his insistence that he rejected Marxism, Wells was accused of being soft on communism. The accusation was not unfounded, as Wells went so far as to defend the Red Terror as killing toward an end. He was under the false impression that the majority of the Russian people supported the communist regime. Like many in the West, he also was led to believe that the policies of the Soviets were far more benign than they actually were. During World War I, every nation was accused of atrocities, most of which were wholly discredited. Wells felt that the situation in Soviet Russia was likely similar. Not until many years later did the world find out the truth about the Soviet secret police and the gulags. Despite his miscalculation of the Russian situation, Wells was surprisingly accurate with many of his near-term predictions. In 1924, he published another collection of articles, together called A Year of Prophesying, in which he predicted a war between the U.S. and Japan, raised concerns about Italian fascism, the French occupation of the Ruhr, and the leniency of Hitler's sentence after the Beer Hall Putsch. He also advocated compulsory schooling until the age of 16 and promoted the idea of global conservationism and protection of endangered species. Tragedy struck in October of 1927 when Jane succumbed to the negative effects of radiation therapy made necessary by her cancer. Following Jane's death, 
Wells continued his campaign to unite the world under the banner of progress and globalization with the follow-up to Outline of History, The Science of Life. The loss of Jane required Wells to find new collaborators. He eventually teamed up with his son Gip and the famous zoologist Julian Huxley. Together they drafted all three volumes of The Science of Life. It sold well, but not quite as well as The Outline. Before The Science of Life was even released, Wells began working on the third and final installment of his nonfiction series. The Work, Wealth, and Happiness of Mankind was a summation of his political, social, and economic ideas. Because of the plethora of topics, it lacked the focus of the first two volumes. His core arguments were later compressed into a smaller book called The Open Conspiracy. In it, Wells calls for the educated elite to take it upon themselves to reject the bias of existing institutions and create a better world. Wells's utopian ideas were already becoming outdated in a world hurtling towards its second global conflict. Wells himself seemed to sense this change, and his novels of the 1930s began to take on a distinctly dystopian tone. Both The Shape of Things to Come in 1933 and The Holy Terror in 1939 described the rise of totalitarian regimes from the ashes of war. A cynical resolve seeped into his writing as Wells grappled with the possibility that the new world order he had long fought for may only be brought about through the destruction of the liberal values he hoped to enshrine. No longer were Wells's utopian novels a hopeful picture of the future. These new works were warning signs on the road to a bleak dystopia. In The Shape of Things to Come, his description of the Puritan tyranny, as the iron-fisted world government was called, prompted the Nazis to ban the book in Germany, where they were collected and burned. In the waning years of the 1930s, Wells frantically traveled the globe on his own diplomatic mission. He met with FDR in Washington and Stalin at the Kremlin. He traveled across England, France, Sweden, and even as far as Australia. Through these travels, he met with government leaders and gave speeches challenging the nationalist and expansionist policies of Nazi Germany and urging for the free, democratic nations to intervene before it was too late. He condemned the Nazis' treatment of the Jews and argued that after their extermination in Germany, the Nazis would turn on the rest of the world. At the same time, he spoke against the Zionists for their treatment of the Palestinians. He claimed that the price of human unity was that no group could be treated special. The future of the Jews is like the future of the Irish, Scotch, Welsh, English, Germans, and other Russians, and that is common humanity is one large and varied world order. Despite his best efforts, war came anyway. Wells found himself trapped on the continent when the British government issued a formal declaration of war on September 3, 1939. He made it as far as Amsterdam before getting stuck. Two weeks later, he narrowly caught the last boat across the channel. Starting in 1940, Wells began publicly urging the Allied powers to commit themselves to the creation of a global federation. He wanted them to make this one of the specific aims of the war. Soon, his thinking expanded even further. 
By October of 1940, Wells was calling for the creation of a global declaration of human rights. His first draft of this moral wants list was published in the Times, where it gained considerable public attention. He soon gained enough support to put together a committee devoted to revising his first draft. The final product became known as the Sankey Declaration. Wells continued to revise and improve the Declaration until 1944, publishing his later drafts under the title Rights of Man or What Are We Fighting For? Much of Wells' language from the original Sankey Declaration was eventually adopted by the United Nations for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It would take six years of unimaginable destruction before this would happen. By his 74th birthday, hundreds of Nazi bombers were raining explosives down on English towns every night. His close friend, Margaret Sanger, urged him to retire safely across the Atlantic. Tucson, Arizona, or somewhere in Kansas were suggested, but Wells, in true British fashion, declined. He scorned the thousands of German V-1 and V-2 rockets falling on London, stating in a letter to Sanger that the robot bombs break a lot of windows and so forth, but are quite ineffective from a military point of view and are nothing to those of us who went through the hard times of 1941. In reality, bombs had blown his front door on numerous occasions and nearly burned his home to the ground if not for the quick work of some of his vigilant neighbors. He refused to be ousted from his home, nor could he bear the thought of being seen as retreating to lecture the world in safety while others remained on the front lines. Instead, as the Nazis were breaking under the vice of the huge Allied invasion from the West and the vengeance of the Soviets from the East, Wells pushed forward on his Declaration of Human Rights. He aimed to have the document translated into as many languages as possible before the close of the war. If it was distributed and adopted only in English, he feared that it would look like a new imperialism rather than the true universal egalitarian policy he intended it to be. The war in Europe ended on May 6, 1945. In the East, things were dragging on in a slow, bloody war of attrition. Military and civilian leaders alike feared the implications of invasion of the Japanese mainland. The militaristic culture of an imperial Japan was sure to lead to unimaginable atrocities by and to civilians if a landing was forced. These concerns prompted FDR and his vice president, Harry Truman, to explore alternative options. On multiple occasions, Terms of surrender were extended to and rejected by the Japanese government. After the death of FDR, Truman was left to decide the issue for himself. At 8.15 a.m. on August 6, 1945, a United States B-29 superfortress, the Enola Gay, dropped the first nuclear bomb called the Little Boy over the Japanese industrial center of Hiroshima. It was the first of two bombs dropped. The second was deployed over Nagasaki. Estimates of the casualties for the two bombings are between 129,000 and 226,000. Wells's nightmare in the world set free had manifested itself into reality, 
and his apocalyptic foresight could not be denied. But the world was now entering a new age, the wonders and terrors of which even Wells's prophetic vision could not plumb. In March of 1944, Wells was diagnosed with liver cancer. The news initially hit him hard as he grappled with the knowledge of his limited remaining time. He decided to turn his attention to making one final comment on the status of humanity. From the summer of 1944 to January 1945, Wells worked on his final book, Mind at the End of Its Tether. At first glance, it seems that Wells's hope in humanity had been undone and was despairingly resolved to its final destruction. Friends and colleagues called on him after its publication, concerned that he had slipped into a deep depression. He denied this, stating that he was simply bored with human folly and found little satisfaction in saying, I told you so. The dawn of the 20th century had at first seemed like the hopeful beginning of the new scientific world Wells had envisioned. Humanity soon proved that it had yet to develop both the moral restraint and social framework necessary to wield its new powers with any semblance of responsibility. During the six years of World War II, nearly 85 million people were killed, many in the most brutal and genocidal ways imaginable. Terrifying new technologies allowed nations to wipe entire cities from existence in a matter of seconds. All of this only 21 years after World War I. Wells felt as if his warnings had gone unheeded. The atomic age now allowed an irresponsible planet to harness unthinkable power. To Wells, it appeared that the human race as he knew it was doomed, either through foolishness or evolution. In many ways, the latter has proven true. While the utopia that Wells had envisioned has yet to arise, Humanity managed to navigate its way through the hair-trigger years of the Cold War, with all sides exhibiting restraint in the face of possible annihilation. We have traveled to and explored other planets, with only 66 years between the Wright brothers' flight at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, and the Apollo 11 moon landing. We have torn the veil of mystery from reality and peered into the world of the subatomic. Our genetic code has been sequenced, and every day, more is understood about the structure of life. The internet has connected every part of the globe with instantaneous communication and created an entire world, parallel to our own, yet invisible. We now stand poised at the edge of a technological cliff even Wells could not have foreseen. New opportunities and challenges are arising as millions of jobs even entire sectors of the economy will become automated. Cutting-edge breakthroughs in biotechnology are moving towards offering humanity longer, healthier lives. Clean, unlimited, renewable energy, once a pipe dream, has become reality. In just the past decade, the nearly defunct space industry has seen a massive revival with both public and private entities across the globe working to make humanity a multi-planetary species. Virtual reality and artificial reality are now embedded within our handheld devices and smartphones. We are even on the path to creating what may very well be our final invention.
The rise of artificial intelligence is soon to surpass every insight and discovery ever made. AI will unequivocally result in the most profound change to human life ever experienced. What that future may bring, only time will tell. Will it resemble one of Wells's utopias? Or will the world burn before we find out? Hopefully, the last century has taught us some valuable lessons. Whether we will use these lessons is still yet to be seen. The next few decades will require of our generation the same sacrifice and determination that the early 20th century required of our grandparents. There is now no going back. We have crossed the Rubicon. Will we set our sights higher than ourselves, adapt, change, and grow? Or will we descend into greed, chaos, petty squabbles over territory, and eventually close the noose upon ourselves? In the mind at the end of its tether, Wells surveyed the landscape of his time and came to this conclusion. There is no way out or around or through. It is the end. A series of events has forced upon the intelligent observer the realization that the human story has already come to an end, and that Homo sapiens, as he has been pleased to call himself, is, in its present form, played out. The stars in their courses have turned against him, and he has to give place to some other animal better adapted to face the fate that closes in more and more swiftly upon mankind. That new animal may be an entirely alien strain, or it may arise as a new modification of the hominidae, and even as a direct continuation of the human phylum, but it will certainly not be human. There is no way out for man, but steeply up or steeply down, adapt or perish, now as ever, is nature's inexorable imperative. Will we adapt steeply up or perish steeply down? In the afternoon on August the 13th, 1946, Wells died in his home at 13 Hanover Terrace in London. He was four weeks short of his 80th birthday. Over the eight decades of his life, Wells witnessed the death of the Victorian era. Even more, he could take pride in knowing that his work helped pave the way for its destruction. He witnessed the birth of the modern world and was known as one of the most famous and controversial authors of the 20th century. Other literary accomplishments notwithstanding, he will forever be remembered as the author of The Time Machine, The War of the Worlds, and one of the great fathers of science fiction. Given his foresight concerning technology, science, and the fragility of human society, it is safe to say that Wells was one of the modern era's first futurists. His vision always extended beyond the horizon of his simple origin in the lower strata of Victorian society. I will leave you with a quote from Wells that sums his life and outlook better than I ever could. I am English by origin but I am early world man, and I live in exile from the world community of my desires. I salute that finer, larger world across the generations, and maybe someone down the vista will look back and appreciate an ancestral salutation.